Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, no surprise there. David Rudiger will take apart the obfuscating use of middle class in American political discourse, and Paisley Curra will talk about trans politics. Middle class is one of those terms people use without a clear idea of what it means. Its ideological function is to obscure the vast differences across this highly polarized society, and it's no surprise that the higher you go up the class ladder, the more likely people are to use it. As my next guest, David Rudiger, argues, it was brought into modern politics with powerful effect by the Clinton campaign in 1992, under the guidance of the consultant Stanley Greenberg. Greenberg had researched Macomb County, Michigan, a largely white suburban settlement north of Detroit, where many former Democrats voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980. Trying to figure out how to appeal to those Reagan Democrats was an obsession of Clinton and his cohort of neoliberal DLC Dems. The obsession persisted well into the new century. In her 2008 primary fight with Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton gleefully but wrongfully noted that he was losing his appeal among, in her words, hardworking Americans, white Americans. David Rodiger is a professor of American Studies and History at the University of Kansas. He specialized in the interrelation of race and class, most notably in his 1991 book, The Wages of Whiteness. He's just out with the new edition of The Sinking Middle Class, first published in 2020 by Orr Books, this one now from Haymarket. The interview, sad to say, does not show Zoom at its audio finest, but to quote Byron, good workmen never quarrel with their tools. David Rodiger. There's this American mythology, we're unique in the world, that we're all pretty much equal, middle class with maybe a few exceptions. Let's uh, apply some fact-checking to that. Are we unique in the world, and are we universally middle class? Neither. In the 19th century, almost no one in the United States would have called themselves middle class. They would have said producers or working men, but not, not middle class. Middle class was actually, when it did appear in print in the United States, was almost always about a fascination with the European middle classes, that is, propertied middle classes in, the, in Europe. It's not until the Depression, really, that the term middle class becomes kind of a campaign among chambers of commerce and among elites to think about the United States as an especially middle class nation. We... Robert Lind and Helen Lind in Middletown already realized that this is happening when they go back to do this, their second book on, on Middletown in Indiana. They say, yeah, we can see that elites are trying to, to talk about the uh, United States as not really being about the CIO, but being about a middle class property conservative uh, nation. Your engram of the term took off earlier than I would have guessed, in around 1930 or shortly, shortly afterwards. So this was a mobilization against the New Deal by business interests? Yeah, I think so. It really uh, peaks in the 30s. The signal of it solidifying is a Fortune magazine special issue in 1940. And Fortune had started right at the beginning of the Depression and was supposed to be this heady capitalist publication. And then it, it couldn't survive in, in that way. It had to kind of rein in its sales. And then by 1940, there was enough recovery that they did this special issue, lavishly proclaiming the middle class nationhood of the of the United States. So that's the, the first boom is this kind of elite campaign, but embraced popularly 
to say that that one is middle class during hard times, during the Depression. But then in the Cold War boom, middle class got attached to patriotism and anti-Sovietism and anti-communism. And so it really boomed. And you're talking about that in Grant in the 50s and in the 60s as a part of the Cold War. Middle class is not at all a term before the 30s, is peaks in the 50s and 60s, but finds its way into U.S. politics in the 1990s. It's the Clinton, Stanley Greenberg, James Carville generation of Democrats that bring the term middle class and the phrase saving the middle class into U.S. uh, parlance politically. By 2012, both Romney and Obama in the 2012 election are campaigning almost entirely on this idea of being the middle class candidate and both use the same definition. They say anybody who makes at that time less than $250,000 a year is a middle class person. So 96% of the population is, is, uh, is middle class. <laughs> it doesn't leave any room for poor people or the 1%. Right. And, and the poor people, Obama says, they are um, part of the middle class because they aspire to be in the middle class. So he denies that he's forgetting to talk about poverty because to talk about the middle class includes everybody, even people who have no money at all. Now, let's do a little, little intellectual history of the term. Um, in European usage, Marxist, classical Marxist usage, it, it described a class between the capitalists and the workers, artisans, petty proprietors, shopkeepers, that sort of thing. Relatively small, divided loyalties, uh, sometimes identifying upwards, sometimes afraid of those below them, but more specific than the American usage, right? How did we get from that sense of a middle class to the modern American one? Yeah, the um, Marxist usage is almost exclusively what you described. It's about uh, people who can look up and can look down and who generally don't have a boss. So you could say in the United States in the 19th century, when three quarters of the people farm at, at certain times, they're independent, they're middle class. There was no consciousness around being middle class in that case. So it's really in the 20th century that we get the middle class as a class that is itself employed. And so in Marxist terms, middle class begins to not make too much sense at that point, because it includes those who are working for somebody else, working for a wage, working for a salary. And it includes the much smaller group now that are entrepreneurs and the smaller still group uh, of farmers. The United States has almost none statistically of the world's farmers. So this idea of a middle class across even just the 19th and the 20th to the 21st century, it changes definition very radically. And, and the great sociologist C. Wright Mills talks about this as the old middle class and the new middle class. But then he adds that in Marxist terms, it's not really a class because you have people in such different relationships to the means of production. Stanley Greenberg, a very interesting character who went from some sort of quasi-Marxist to the guru of the Clinton revolution. What was his contribution? What was his research in Macomb County in particular? Um, What did it tell uh, the political world? Yeah, Greenberg is this Yale professor, Harvard PhD, political scientist who uh, radicalized very conservative advisors and pretty conservative dissertation, and then radicalizes himself around the tail end of the new left in in, uh, New Haven and begins to work on South Africa and does very important Marxist work on South Africa 
but then is denied tenure at Yale and kind of destroyed in his what we now call NGO career in South Africa. And he becomes a consultant for the Democratic Party, first in Connecticut and then nationally. And because he's interested in class and associated with the unions in South Africa, he's tasked by the Democrats and by the United Automobile Workers Union at trying to figure out who these Reagan voters are in class terms and why so many formerly pro-New Deal voters were then voting for Reagan, the so-called Reagan Democrats. And so he goes to Macomb County outside of Detroit, very Democratic County through the years, that all of a sudden with the George Wallace candidacies and then with the Reagan uh, candidacies becomes a conservative county. And it's a highly trade union county as well. So he's supposed to explain how you reel these Reagan Democrats back into the Democratic Party. Well, it's the time of NAFTA. By the time he, he goes and does his focus group research there, it's the time of trade agreements. It's the time when there's no toleration on the part of rulers for expanded trade union rights. So he doesn't have anything to offer workers in Macomb County in terms of reform. What he can offer is to listen to them and their complaints about welfare, about crime, about all the things that supposedly drove them out of Detroit, and to promise that the Democrats will be the best listeners to those complaints. And he calls sometimes those people in Macomb County the white working class, and he promises to understand the white working class. But at the time that he writes his book about the Clinton triumphs in 1992, he calls that book Middle Class Dreams. And he's decided that even though he knows that about half of U.S. labor force calls itself at that time working class and half middle class, he decides that these unionized workers are middle class people. And he appeals to them by just listening to them and mostly by listening to their complaints in all white groups sometimes in all male groups, in all Reagan voter groups. These focus groups are kind of encounter groups in which people express their grievances as white people. So he's kind of choosing to see uh, the middle class as white, as is often done in the United States, and then turn, choosing to appeal to them as white. And this is where we get Clinton's promises to uh, end welfare as we know it, and we get uh, Clinton's promises to curtail affirmative action. We get the Effective Death Penalty Act. Uh, we get the prison boom. One of the many prison booms uh, occurs as a result of Clinton policy. But it's this moment where there can't be an appeal to white workers in class terms. And so there's going to be an appeal in race terms. And that racial appeal is going to be called middle class the story that uh, people our age will remember from this is the Sister Soldier story where Jesse Jackson needs to be attacked by Clinton in order to divorce uh, the Democrats from the Jackson agitations. And so he goes to a Jackson meeting and attacks Jackson publicly for having Sister Soldier, the rapper, on the program of the meeting. And uh, he calls her anti-white. And Jackson's response is great. He, he says, um, I think that Clinton was responding to somebody who was not in the room. <laughs> not in the room people were the Macomb County people who were polled. And we then later learn that it was Greenberg who thought up this stunt 
to go and attack Jackson in his own lair and attack him over a, a female rapper and her supposed anti-whiteness. The discourse changed from back in the golden age, 50s, 60s, when we were celebrating the middle class as the great triumph of American life. By the time we get into the 90s, we're trying to save it. Why this change in, in the discourse to saving the middle class? Well, partly, and, and we know this from your work in part, it's a real decline of the middle layers of the economy. If you, if you, this tremendous rise in inequality means that you're going to have diminution of the wealth of those in the central quintiles of, of wealth, and, and middle class people are suffering. Middle class people are suffering a time crunch, they're suffering increasing debt, increasing student debt. There are real crises in the middle class. And one of the things that thinking middle class really insists on is that there is a class basis for people identifying as middle class. And that class basis lies in debt and overwork and misery, as well as the small pleasures that are associated with, with middle class life. So you see an acceleration of those miseries in the period from the early 70s onward, but definitely from the, the 90s onward. And you see people realizing that the things that had been identified with middle-class life, like an annual vacation, a car for every member, paying for your kids' college education, all of those things are becoming increasingly impossible. So middle-class life, as it becomes more and more uh, desperate, uh, it's possible to appeal politically to saving it, even if there's not much of a program that articulates what that uh, salvation would look like. I'm speaking with the historian David Rudiger, author of The Sinking Middle Class, just out in a new edition from Haymarket Books. This stratum, I don't know exactly how to describe it, you know, office workers, cubicle dwellers, what used to be called the white collar worker, which seems like a fairly antique term now has been neglected uh, or even greeted with hostility by a lot of the left, people coming out of the Marxist left, uh, labor left. And you hear it now, even with a disdain from people who imagine themselves militant leftists, a, a contempt for a attention paid to the professional managerial class. What about that attitude that the left has shown towards this stratum? Uh, is it helpful analytically or politically? Well, I think it's a very long-standing stance on the part of the left. And, and in Marx's case, and again, he was talking mostly about this old middle class of independent producers between labor and capital. In his case, he often indulged semi-humorous attacks on the middle class. But he also thought that the middle classes, as they were pressed by the development of capitalism, would uh, join a rising labor movement. And he emphasized both their increasing misery and the labor movement's rise as a, as a pole of attraction in making this prediction. Well, it turned out that that mostly didn't happen. The middle classes were that you're describing the so-called white collar middle class uh, in Britain, the black coated class, uh, that those people were associated sometimes with the right and sometimes with conservatism. Certainly the Frankfurt School in Germany tried to think hard about what the association of that middle class, that new middle class, and some entrepreneurs was with, with Nazism. So you have this longstanding suspicion of the middle class that is a feature of the left. Now, part of my argument is that we need to begin to, to say, we've known for a long time 
that those workers in offices, in cubicles, in professional capacities even, are proletarianized as the years go on. And not only are they proletarianized, but they're right now kind of leading parts of the labor movement. If we think about teachers and nurses as people who have been key to the revival of the labor movement in our moment, I think we need to think very hard about what it means to say someone is middle class. I think that we have you know, anywhere from 30 to 40% of workers as middle class. Polls seem to show that it's about an even split now between people who say they're working class and people who say that they're middle class. If that's the case, and I think about 80% of the population is, is working class, uh, we still have a lot of people who are choosing to see themselves as middle class and are working class people. Well, yeah, that, that self-description is middle class, but with a sense of the effective landscape or the, the stratum we're talking about is often very distressed, overworked, uh, over-indebted, unable to make ends meet. Yet the aspirational use of that self-description, middle class, um, is there any political possibility <laughs> in, in the tension between those two things? We need a political strategy that appeals to the middle class without ridiculing them, but kind of steadily points out that the, their work is an important part of their misery. And the boom in the boom lab, I guess I would call it in, in trade union activity now, seems to suggest that a lot of people who we don't think of as the traditional blue collar working class are reaching that conclusion on their own. Sometimes I think they reach it even a little bit more than our union leadership reaches it, because a lot of union leaders still want to speak in the rhetoric of saving the middle class. And this is because they're allied with um, democratic campaigns, but it's also because they hear from their members that some of their members think of themselves as middle class, but think of themselves kind of, as you say, effect effectively as aggrieved middle-class people, as desperate middle-class people. The 2016 and 2020 elections, the whole figure of Trump has brought forward this idea of a white working class in a configuration somewhat different from the Stanley Greenberg version. This one is very angry and I think often misnamed. And a lot of people are called the white working class are provincial petty bourgeoisie car dealers, people who own contracting companies, um, although may, they may code as working class uh, to uh, to urban elites, you know, they're objectively not uh, in that sense. What, what do we make of this, this Trumpy? There's a paper on the 2016 election that described a lot of the Trump base as being locally rich but nationally poor. What do you make of this version of the middle class, the, the Trumpy kind of new right, J.D. Vance even, uh, work, yeah, white yeah. working class? That doesn't work in Vance's case, but this dovetails with the kind of shorthand that people are using now to describe the working class as high school educated. And so you get a lot of people who are high school educated, but locally rich, as you just as you just put it. The press was very anxious, very ready to blame the Trump election on the white working class. The New York Times didn't wait a day to make that analysis. And that was almost all based on kind of instant exit polling based on uh, this crude definition of high school educated versus college educated, middle class versus working class. That I think, again, if we think about teachers and nurses and their pivotal role in the 
labor movement now, that it just doesn't work to say that. We have a lot of college-educated people who are poor also, and who are kind of the most left part of voting constituencies in the United States right now. And they're they're clearly working class people who get counted as middle class. So yeah, I, I think that the use of white working class had a real boom after Trump's election. And it was pressed by Greenberg and, and Carville, uh, James Carville and some uh, Democratic strategists as well, because they wanted to pull the Democratic Party back to the right, especially about immigration at that point. So they wanted to say that we have to once again listen to this to these aggrieved people who are not any longer voting Democratic. Now we're going to call them the white working class and not the middle class. But they've kind of slid back into making appeals to the middle class again now that that white working class turned out to be a term for white nationalists uh, more than it did for liberals. But even now we have people like Greenberg and then his uh, sometime collaborator, Rita Shera, uh, saying that uh, the Democrats have to throw black people and immigrants under the bus to win over this constituency. What's going on with that? Yeah, I think it's just the game that's been played since the 1992 election, which is to say uh, there are these crazy people out there. Sometimes we call them the Macomb County middle class. Sometimes we call them the white working class. And we don't have anything for them, but we need their votes. And so therefore, it means that you have a class politics that's very impoverished and attenuated because we don't have anything to offer in terms of of class politics. But you also have a racial justice politics that becomes very attenuated because uh, the view is that you can kind of endlessly go to black communities and say, we can't do this because we risk uh, electoral fortunes. Uh, I mean, that was kind of the story of, of Biden's nomination was that there looked like there was going to be a slight opening, especially towards class politics and uh, toward race politics as well. And then very quickly, it was it was shut down in the terms of a much more traditional Greenberg oriented uh, kind of wing of the Democratic Party. And now you have uh, people saying, oh, it's pronouns are going to cost the Democrats the midterms. We have to throw over the sexual minorities, too. Yes, I, I think that's that's it. And in the transport, all these issues, they don't have to get much popular traction for the elements in the Democratic Party to say, well, yeah, that's what we want. Also, we want we want to move back on those issues. And, and it's the retreat that's important. That's kind of their analysis and has been their analysis really since the 1990s. The Democrats have to be more like the, the Republicans in order to win. We've seen uh, a wave of organizing at Starbucks stores. Uh, we've seen some at Apple stores, union organizing. We've also seen you know, the Amazon campaign, some of it the traditional uh, union approach, some of it uh, in Staten Island, very much an independent operation done with a, uh, an old Communist Party manual <laughs> uh, guiding the way. Um, what do you make of these new efforts at union organizing, which seem a departure from, from old school stuff? I think they're very exciting, first of all. I don't know, maybe you saw, maybe you were even there, the Labor Notes Conference this past weekend, its plenary session had Chris Smalls from the Amazon Labor Union, it had baristas, it it had a whole range of new organizers. And it also featured a very good talk by Sean O'Brien, the new president of the Teamsters Union. Very, very militant, old school Irish trade union talk. 
But at a certain point in, in uh, Sean's talk, at the very point when he might have kind of brought everything together, he said, we have to continue to rely on the people who have made this nation great, who have built this nation with their sweat, pause, middle class. And the talk should have said black and white labor, workers of color included. Every Other parts of the talk did. But the kind of reflex was to go back to middle class as the anchor of any possible coalition. And I do think that's destructive. The same thing happened with Bernie Sanders at the Amazon rally right before the Alabama failed election, representation election at Amazon in, in Alabama. He followed Killer Mike, the rapper who gave this great talk on race and, and class. And then he talked about the middle class. And that's actually destructive in a representation election where it's secret ballot by mail and the company is appealing to people to say, we, we've given you this middle class status and we can take it away. You really needed to talk about work and working class at that moment. I'm not a person who believes that if people start calling themselves working class, all of our problems are going to be solved. But I do think there's a reason to not further the uh, tendency to uh, grab onto middle class as the, as the key to everything. That was David Rodiger, professor of history at the University of Kansas and author of The Sinking Middle Class, just out in a new edition from Haymarket Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of the Fugue Number no. 7 by Dmitry Shostakovich, performed by Keith Jarrett. Transness is the issue of the day, it seems. Early on Thursday, it was reported that Roger Marshall, a Republican senator from Kansas, was contemplating blocking a bill to extend funding for school lunches because of a policy that says LGBTQ students can't be discriminated against, making him pro-discrimination. Marshall said that if schools in Kansas can't serve lunch, we should blame transgender issues. There's some mix of political opportunism and fundamentalist Christianity behind these expressions of intense bigotry. To counter that ugliness, a serious discussion of the politics of transness is in order. No one is better qualified to do that than my next guest, Paisley Kura, who's just out with a book from NYU Press, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Back in the old days, meaning the 1990s or so, people who talk about these things, me included, made a distinction between sex, a biological category or something like that, and gender, the constellation of social and cultural roles surrounding that distinction. Sex was thought to be rather stable, and gender, by contrast, rather fluid. The rising salience of trans people has played havoc with that distinction. 
Paisley Cura is a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Paisley Cura. You start the book by uh, exploring some of the language around trans issues. Even transness itself, it's kind of hard to name what we're talking about. There are just so many different terms, uh, and people, of course, are often in fear of saying the wrong thing and getting called out for it. So what does this um, confusion around language tell us? The confusion stems from a couple of things. One is just the proliferation of genders and so many different ways of doing genders and identifying. And my kid had a school project where they had to interview a gender expert. And I didn't even make the short list. And it's partly because I'm not on TikTok. I've, you know, I sort of try to keep up, but I've not kept up with all the different names and, and such. The other reason is like, there's just this drawn out, long going battle over what is sex and what is gender and how should they be defined and how should the relationship between them be regulated. So we have science has lots of different views of sex and gender, religious folks, theological views, and, you know, uh, from the academy, postmodern ideas of, of sex and gender. So there's just all these definitional battles that have gone on for a long time. And then sex and gender. Uh, you somewhat flip the uh, conventional uh, treatment of these things uh, and make gender more stable of the two and trouble the idea of sex. What's going on with that? Yeah, because I was always trying to figure out, like, what's the best definition of sex that we should use in the law? And then I finally decided, like, I don't know what sex is in terms of who's classified as male or who's classified as female. Like, I don't know. Like, oh, there's so many different rules. It's like, I'm going to look, I'm going to, for the purpose of this book, I'm going to do this methodological kind of innovation and just say that sex is a decision backed by the force of law. So sex is what the state says it is. This is just for the thought experiment of the book. And so then we can kind of see in a much better way, like, how sex becomes instrumentalized. And then gender is left to like all the things that may be power ideas of our ideas of sex, all these cultural ideas of hierarchy and arrangements and social norms and, you know, all those sorts of stuff. And that's not particularly what I spent a lot of time on in the book, even though that's what actually kind of drives some of these decisions. Your idea of that the sex is what the state uh, names and decides. I'm reminded to some degree of race. Uh, the legal codification of blackness followed the practice of slavery. It didn't precede it. But uh, the category Hispanic was created during the Nixon administration, reflecting activism, no doubt. But as classification solidified, it's, it it's became something we think and talk about. It organized the way we think and talk about um, Hispanic ethnicity. And now we, of course, have fights over whether that term is even appropriate. What's the relation between naming and taxonomy uh, around sex versus race? If you think about like the Latino, Latinx comparison, it might be more useful to think about it in terms of the word transgender, which was circulated by folks who are members of what we now call the transgender community as a response against a pathologizing discourse of transsexuality or gender identity disorder. So it's meant to be like, this is our term, we are going to deploy it in a political way. Of course, now it has completely been domesticated in terms of uh, a certain kind of identity politics of of uh, representing all the different types of people. And I, I, I don't know, I just, uh, the question about like, uh, Latino, I think, is a more um, it's kind of more complex because well, there's no community. It's it's so many different cultures. And Laura Gomez has this great book on the development of of the of the term in relation to all these different cultures and communities and how it operates politically. Trans activism and scholarship arose in the 80s and 90s in the moments of neoliberalism's triumph and critiques of capitalism and colonialism were discarded as obsolete. Everyone talked about representation rather than distribution, to use Nancy uh, Fraser's distinction. Does this field, um, both one, is one of study and of activism, still reflect that origin? Yeah, I think it does. 
I think it reflects the origin of coming of age in a time of like the birth of neoliberalism, the birth of like the Clintonian neoliberalism of representational diversity. But I don't want to fall into the kind of the distinction between like a radical approach and an assimilationist approach, because I think you can even read the, the so-called radical approach as not really taking on, on class in a very interesting way. And uh, there's this uh, political scientist named Joanna Wust who's this great article uh, where the queer left uh, imagines uh, this kind of revolutionary past, but it doesn't really draw on working class politics. Trans politics also arose as legal distinctions between male and female were disappearing. Unlike in the 70s when women couldn't get credit cards. We live in a very different world now. Uh, And you say several times that Obergefell, the uh, Supreme Court decision that uh, legalized uh, same-sex marriage, perhaps dealt a fatal blow to gender distinctions in law, although the the rumor is the Supreme Court wants to reverse that decision. But still, uh, yeah, what is the um, the relationship of that erosion of the male-female hierarchy, at least in a legal sense? What is the relation of that to the emergence of uh, transness and transpolitics? So in terms of like the emergence of transness, that's a larger question. But in terms of the emergence of a trans politics and the successes of trans politics, we often narrate it as an identity politics movement and which I was part of and believe in to this day of like, here we are, we exist, we should have recognition. And then some aspects of that movement want to go on and be more radical. But I think what actually made a lot of the gains of the transgender rights movement possible was what I refer to sometimes as the disestablishment of gender. So the state stopped treating men and women differently. So sex classifications are in the law because we need to know who's a man and who's a woman to make sure who's going to uh, be able to apply for a credit card and who's going to have to send them for selective service. And as those distinctions have largely, not completely, but largely gone away, they loosen the barriers for, for transitioning in terms of one sex classification. And I think sometimes that the relationship between those two movements isn't really um, noticed. And with Obergefell, you know, just having done policy advocacy myself, we would, you know, re- actually literally hear from policymakers like, well, we'd like to change these requirements on like birth certificates, but we're afraid that if we make it too loose, if we make it some sort of standard that doesn't involve any kind of body modification we're just going to get a, like a cis lesbian and another cis lesbian marrying each other. And one of them will just say they're a man and we can't have that. But with a, a Bregafel and the end to the ban on same-sex marriage, it really loosens things up in terms of uh, transgender recognition. And of course, the fact that they, there's talk of wanting to reverse that suggests that when they're going after trans people, they're also going after feminism, right? They're, they're really kind of uh, very closely related. Yeah, exactly. So trans people have been very good at talking about like sex classification and what is sex and what sex should be. And of course, feminist politics of many ilks have been very good at talking about like gender is this hierarchical system and this distributive mechanism. But with the right wing attacks now, we can that comes out really clearly like they're attacking trans people. There are some state legislators are going after trans youth. Other people, other legislators are trying to kind of walk back sex reclassification policies because being able to distinguish between men and women requires a more sharp policing of the binary between men and women. But the binary itself is in service of hierarchy, of making sure some people get more stuff than others. So they're, they really are totally wrapped up together. You also, aside from troubling the concept of sex, trouble the idea of the state. <laughs> I was reminded of this exchange in The Sopranos, where Meadow, fresh from a classic Columbia, was talking about the state, and Tony says, the state like New Jersey? <laughs> Which I thought was funny, but as anything involving New Jersey is funny. But there's a point in that question, isn't there? The state, what the state is, is not quite as clear um, team when we use it so casually. 
Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, coming up, I was in grad school in the 90s and I was talking with a, a friend who was a little, little bit older and like my first feminist text was like Tora Moy's sexual textual politics. Like it wasn't like Shulamith Firestone or anything like cool like that. Um, but coming up in the 90s, we were really good at denaturalizing sex and denaturalizing gender. But this kind of default notion of the state is just this solid entity, you know, and that like the state is can be mean. And but if we make the right arguments, if we explain the right, like how gender should really be defined and what sex really is, it will kind of come around and, and get it right. So there's just not as much complexity in thinking about like what states are. And one of the things I try to do in my book is like just like there's no one definition of sex, there's no one state. We have all these different agencies and court decisions and jurisdictions, and they're often not doing the same thing. Like DMVs are doing a very different thing than jails, which are doing a very different thing than tax systems. So it's really important to recognize when we get what seems like contradictory decisions in sex classification, those contradictions kind of reflect that, that there's, there's not one unitary state, but different state projects. Now, you describe your experience with the Social Security Administration, which turned out to be nowhere near as terrible as you <laughs> perhaps feared. What's the interest of the Social Security Administration in this fixed notion of gender versus, say, the DMV or the Department of Health? How do all these different levels of government, different departments, um, how do their concerns differ? Yeah, it's so interesting because when I was doing research on birth certificate policies in New York City, I was I found this this uh, document from like 1966 where some New York City official had written to someone at the Department of Health and Education and Welfare, whatever it was called then. And he said, what should we do about birth certificates for these transsexual people? And the officials said, well, I don't know. I talked to I talked to people in different other federal departments, and they said it actually would really depend if it's about selective service or benefits or just keeping track of their social security number. So it's interesting, like, you know, because I think I'm an academic and I'm smart. And you realize that the the real Foucauldians who really are thinking cl like clearly or logically, if not in a very progressive way, about the workings of the state uh, are the bureaucrats. And so when I was doing that research, I thought, oh, my goodness, I never changed my Social Security gender. I better go do that. So that's why I went in there and did that. But one of the reasons why the Social Security Administration wants to keep track of that is because people who are married get survivor benefits. And so when I changed my Social Security records, it was before the ban on Obergefell. And I think at that point I was married, but it wasn't clear if it, that marriage would have been seen as a same-sex marriage that would have been sort of legal or an opposite sex marriage, but I wanted to um, get all my ducks in a row because when I was doing research on the Social Security Administration, they couldn't even tell their field agents how to adjudicate a transgender a marriage involving a transgender spouse. They basically said, treat as suspicious any marriage involving one spouse who's transgender. And in, in that case, a survivor benefits might be denied. So these things really do matter because money's involved. I'm speaking with Paisley Curra, author of Sex Is As Sex Does, just out from NYU Press. Why is transness so salient as a political issue now? That is such a good question. I mean, the way I look at it is like the good states, like the blue states, like New York City, which is approaching pretty good policies on the on paper for transgender people, and the red states are sort of mirror images of each other. So the red states or the Republican-dominated states are starting to target transgender people for the last few years. And places like New York City, they've 
over time, they slowly changed their birth certificate policy so that now like anybody can go in and just check a box, male, female, non-binary, and you don't need any doctor's letter. So it's like the perfect policy. And when it was released, uh, de Blasio was the mayor at the time. And he said, this is what transgender New Yorkers need. So it was great. It was like a good policy, but it was also articulated as kind of like a, an identity politics. Here's a gift to this important group of people, this constituency. Because when they changed that policy for the birth certificates, they didn't change the entire birth certificate policy for every baby that's born in New York City. Those are still classified as M or F for the most part. So people just who want to change their, their birth certificate can do so, but there's still this kind of old-fashioned system of gender. And on the other side, then, as you say, we have the Republicans attacking. And, you know, a lot of uh, one uh, the old-fashioned trope of the scapegoat, it's not, it's kind of easy, but it, sometimes it kind of might be accurate. You think of Governor Abbott, you know, that terrible thing that happened a few years ago when like 250 people in Texas died because the electrical grid failed. And his first legislative priority that fall when they came back into session was to pass a bill attacking trans kids. I think it was a sports bill. And they still haven't fixed their electrical grid entirely. So so there definitely is, is that part of it. But there's something about transness or sexual indeterminacy or crossing boundaries that God established that you're not supposed to cross that makes some people really, really anxious. And it's not just conservatives. I mean, I've heard, of course, you know, the TERFs are, are notorious for this, but also... I've heard fairly liberal people say that, oh, pronouns are going to lose, cost the Democrats the House in November. Where does this anxiety come from, do you think? I think it comes from just not being around, maybe not being around transgender people or in the work and not being familiar with it, because people do get used to it pretty quickly. But I think if you're not around trans people and you just get on your news from this national media environment where you just go to the channel or the source that reflects your, your general zeitgeist, it might seem sort of intimidating. But I think one of the problems that we're in now is like with the right wing, they're talking about this is what sex is. And anybody who says it's different is just a victim of gender ideology and has read too much Butler. And I just think it's a real mistake for trans advocates and people like me or any folks to cut, get into battle with the right wing over sex definition because they're actually using sex and anti-trans stuff. Um, instrumentally. They don't really care what sex definition is. They just want to make sure they have a definition that will hold up their particular view of the world. And so what we need to do with against these um, terrible Republican policies is not say, oh, this is what sex is, but to say, look at who this policy is harming. Like for sports policies, like, do you really need to make sure that middle schoolers can't do intramural sports because of your view of sex? Like, is that is that, is that really something that has to happen? You devoted a chapter to prisons, incarceration, politics, and trans people. I mean, you quote some stats in there about how much more likely trans people are to go to prison than the non-trans. It's quite stunning. But you use that case study of the prison to, uh, in part to question the usefulness of transphobia as a motive or a category. Could you, could you explain what you're thinking about there? Yeah. Transgender people are more vulnerable to incarceration. Those statistics totally bear that out. But you really sort of have to break it down. And you see those statistics also really um, reflect what one would expect to see in terms of like the racialization of the prison population and things like that. So that chapter basically talks about like transgender as this overarching kind of analytic to understand incarceration. It kind of plays into this kind of non-discrimination neoliberalism. So a lot of mainstream trans rights groups will say, if we don't pass a non-discrimination law, then trans people are going to be forced to do like survival sex and do things that 
you're you know, classified as illegal and end up in prison, but it doesn't really contest the role of prisons in the economy or the existence of prisons. And another thing that that same kind of discourse does is it compares the situation of like trans prisoners to cisgender prisoners. Looking at like the the uh, the, har- the harm and violence that trans prisoners face, m- most of whom are trans women, and that is a really serious problem: the violence and harassment and lack of gender appropriate care. But it also kind of constructs this this prisoner as just a okay, you know. So trans people do not get much medical care, gender appropriate medical care in prison, but in fact. <laughs> of cancer don't get medical appropriate care in prison. I had um, Dee Farmer, who was the first trans woman to bring a case before the Supreme Court, speak in my class last year, um, and she had done an Eighth Amendment case that was successful. And she does a lot of advocacy for people in prison now and around HIV and stuff. And there, a lot of medical policies towards cisgender people are based on Advil. Like, here's a couple of Advil for whatever ails you, whether it be cancer or liver disease. What I'm trying to do in with that argument is kind of like move away from this transgender, cisgender analytic for every possible thing and look more clearly about how even some transgender people, like some people like myself, you know, a white privileged university professor, like I'm not really totally vulnerable to incarceration, like touch wood, maybe something will happen, but demographically, I'm not that really vulnerable. But what happens is like, literally I gave a talk at a college one time and someone stood up and said, yeah, look at me. So like very fancy private college. I'm trans and I'm, I'm vulnerable to being incarcerated. And in my head, I'm thinking you're vulnerable to getting a job at Goldman Sachs. Like that's your <laughs> danger. Like, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of that, in fact, I don't know if you noticed it in the book, but a couple of times I had this kind of tagline where Goldman Sachs flies the transgender flag. I did notice Pride that. Day. Which you uh, pointed out to me years ago. Oh, that's nice. Um, actually, I, I, I met someone once who uh, was doing um, diversity for Credit Suisse, and one of her responsibilities was designing their Pride Parade float. Not that man. Yeah, we've come a long way <laughs> from go. the original Stonewall, haven't we? I know exactly, exactly. Now, there's a contradiction, uh, and you certainly you explore this. You admit to this. In, in some ways, you want the binary to work for uh, trans people like you. You want to be able to change the F to the M on your social security account. Yet on the other hand, you want to undo the entire sortation structure and undo the whole gender classification system. How do you reconcile these competing um, interests? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. If everybody else is going to have an M or an F or an X on their driver's license, like I want one too. Like I don't want to be the one person who doesn't. So for example, for a while in New York City, it would give transsexual people new birth certificates, but have no gender box whatsoever. So we all are in the same box together. You know, the state doesn't really need to track people's sex classification for hardly any reasons. Maybe they want to track people for, uh, I guess, selective service would be the very last, one of the last ones. What I kind of talk about in the book is I had been this proponent, and I still am, of a certain kind of like gender pluralism, like let many different genders bloom. And then Zila Eisenstein said, maybe you don't want to use that exact quote. I had been a proponent of that, and I still am. But one of the things I think where trans politics has sort of gone awry, perhaps, is that as we ask the state to go to the business of regulating gender, we've sort of lost an analytic capability of, of understanding gender asymmetry that still exists. Like Certainly, there's no like state-sanctioned occupational segregation in the workforce anymore. But we still have these larger cultural narratives around gender that mean that most people doing low-paid care work are women, and especially women of color. So we've sort of lost a, an analytic ability to take on questions of gender asymmetry because we've been so focused on the state. I mean, I just get to that in the last chapter, but it is something that I think we need to kind of be able to come back to. Yeah, that seems to be rich material for the future because, you know, some of the... Um... 
I don't want to give any quarter to the TERFs, but you know, they are complaining that traditional feminist concerns are getting um, eclipsed by trans politics. And whether we're talking about violence against women, uh, gender discrimination in the workplace, abortion politics, they feel like they're um, losing a point of leverage. Uh, how do you respond to that? I think it's true that like there's much more interest among young people in trans politics. The Williams Institute just today released a study. The number of trans youth just doubled in the last few years. Like five years ago, like 10% of trans people in the US were between 13 and 17 and now 18% of trans people between 13 and 17. So people are really rethinking gender and rethinking how they want to experience their gender. And like, that's not a bad thing. But I do think that we as a community as a culture, we haven't really come to, to groups with this, the deep-seated levels of misogyny that's out there. And of course, the problem with the TERPs, the TERFs are is the TERFs are just scaring people away from feminism because young people who have are politically interested, they might want to be feminist, but they're afraid of being associated with TERFdom, which is still a pretty small element. I think we need to kind of find out ways and discourses to kind of bring gender hierarchy as an analytical problem back in back into the mix, but without kind of reasserting like like with the, the TERFs do some kind of biologically essentialist categories. I mean, the TERFs are, you know, there's something they'll be testifying right alongside right-wing people against like the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would include sexual orientation and gender identity. Like they've really gone off the deep end. Yeah. I mean, they've, a lot of them just seem frankly right-wing in a lot of cases. Yeah. It seems that this doing this politics successfully or correctly requires embracing some contradictory ideas at, simultaneously. When you talk about the state, there's a Marxist sense or I guess anarchist as well, sense of the state as something alien and imposed by a foreign force versus a liberal uh, view that it reflects popular sovereignty. And while the first might be more true than the second, um, if you want to live in the real world, you have to use the mechanisms of the liberal view, right? Isn't that kind of like uh, similar to uh, what you're doing with the gender binary? Yeah, it's true. It's, a, it's like we're kind of stuck with this narrative of popular sovereignty, even though we live in, a, you know, those Princeton guys say, well, it turns out we live in an oligarchy in terms of, you know, uh, the, the what other political scientists call the democratic deficit. Like the public opinion has to be really, really, really high to change a policy. Yeah. So I think that's that's a problem. And I don't know the answer because that is like that is like a larger the larger question in terms of like the structure, you know, of the, the, the filibuster, the Senate the court, like all these anti-democratic impulses, just as transgender issues are becoming more broad and more accepted and part of a kind of broader democratic progressive movement. Democ well, not just as it's been a slow, slow decline, but democracy is at its least powerful in terms of these these structural structural impediments. So that's it. I don't know the answer though. Uh, and finally, um, you know, this um, a very complicated moment, you know, the um, anti-trans politics are really heated and inflamed and Republicans are using it as one of their core issues. On the other hand, it seems like trans people are making all kinds of gains in popular culture and broader acceptance. So uh, how do you read the status of the current moment? Are you scared at the, at by any of this? Yeah, I am scared because these, these laws have real effects. When Governor Abbott announced that they would be investigating anybody who provided gender-affirming support for trans teenagers for child abuse... There's this one young man who tried to commit suicide. He goes into a, an institutional setting. They talk to him. They realize that he has been trying to get uh, cross-gender hormones. And then they uh, have his family investigated. Uh, they make sure that they're investigated for providing support. So um, it's a really bad moment. The one kind of bright thing that I see is that, you know, these trans kids are not all, you know, from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. They're all over the country and they're, 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 they live in families where their parents are Christian, evangelical, conservative, and would not have been happy with or predicted that they would have had a trans kid. 
But then they turn out to be their fiercest advocates a lot of the times. And so a Trump-appointed judge in Alabama, no one was expecting great things. But when this one of these kind of laws that criminalized the provision of gender-affirming care, he actually uh, he put out a preliminary injunction on it. He said, uh, you know, the government shouldn't be interfering with the parent's ability to uh, seek the best care for their child. So in some sense, it's a little conservative and then it's like based on the parent's control of the child. But in another sense, it's like the people who are closest to the problem are the best ones who are able to, to deal with it and provide support and not some kind of abstract Republican folks who are just uh, doing this to rile up the base. So that, that is somewhat positive. That was Paisley Kura, a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College. His book, Sex Is As Sex Does, is just out from NYU Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the first movement of Georg Philipp Telemann's Concerto in E-flat for two horns, TWV 54 ES1, performed by the Capella Istropolitana, conducted by Richard Edlinger. Till next week, bye. Thank you.